In the meantime, here we are in our sermon. So if you're pulling out your sermon notes and notice I've given this sermon a special title. And the title of this sermon is Lazarus and the Tulip. So let me explain. Uh, we understand that while the world is celebrating Halloween on October the 31st this week, and it's not a bad thing for you to get out there and get a little free candy yourselves, all right? But while the world is celebrating the holiday of Halloween, we're going to be celebrating the idea of Reformation Day. And a lot of you know that it was on this date, October the 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. A year ago marked the 500th year anniversary, and I missed it because I wasn't here. I was preaching a Reformation message in New Zealand. And so now I'm here, I wanted to preach on the Reformation. So I've decided to do it on this Sunday, and we're going to do it for a couple of weeks. And I think you'll understand why uh, as we get into the message, because I want to show you how Lazarus and the story of Lazarus's death and how he was raised from the dead does a better job than any other miracle that Jesus ever performed, I believe, to illustrate the doctrines of grace. So this morning, we're going to look at a message entitled Lazarus and the tulip. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Let's just read this occurrence of what happened to Lazarus in the grave. This was our text from last week, and I'm going to springboard off of this text of Lazarus being raised from the dead to teach a little mini-series on the Reformation on Lazarus and the tulip. John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Dear God, we ask that you would take the truth of this text and your word and teach us today so that we can better understand the marvelous nature of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a few years before the pilgrims landed in the New World in year 1620, a theological controversy erupted in the Netherlands. While the pilgrims were signing the Mayflower Compact and establishing the Plymouth Colony, the theological faculty of a Dutch institution began to articulate and launch what has become known as the Doctrines of Grace. This Calvinistic teaching spread throughout Europe and then around the world. Some of the faculty of that Dutch seminary began to think deeper about issues surrounding the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination. 
And as this theological controversy spread across Holland, it upset the church and the theologians of the day. Finally, a gathering called a synod was convened to address the subject. Important theologicals were squared away and the views of certain people were rejected, including those of a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius was a Dutch Reformed theologian and professor of theology at the University of Leiden. He is most known for his departure from Reformed theology on the Belgic Confession, resulting in what became the Calvinism-Arminianism controversy, which was addressed at the Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619. Now, the Arminian position suggested five anti-Calvinist corrections that were articulated in the five articles of remonstrance and can be summarized as follows. So Jacob Arminius and his followers had trouble with Reformed doctrine. They started to write their views in an Arminian package, and these are the five points of classical Arminianism. Okay, listen carefully. Number one, universal prevenient grace. This is a grace that supposedly restores man's free will, which was impaired by the effect of original sin. This prevenient grace enables the sinner to choose or refuse salvation offered by God in Jesus Christ. Number two, conditional election. This view of election holds that man is the final arbitrator of his election and that God elects him on the basis of foreseen faith. This faith is exercised by man's free will, which ultimately makes man responsible for his own salvation, not God. Number three, unlimited atonement. This doctrine states that Christ suffered and died on the cross on behalf of believers and unbelievers alike. God then elects for salvation those whom he foresees that will believe in Christ based on their own free will. Number four, resistible grace. This point holds that God never overcomes the resistance of man to his saving grace. This position teaches that saving grace can be resisted and refused by the unregenerate based on man's own free will. Number five, uncertainty of perseverance. This view teaches that those who have been saved can fall from grace. At any time in the life of a believer, they can lose their salvation and return to their unconverted state. There is no assurance of salvation that God's grace would preserve a sinner to the very end. And so these five points are the conviction of Arminians, at least in the classical sense. And it, it led to the movement that went against Orthodox Reformed theology, and they were called the Remonstrants. And they were called the remonstrance because they were rebelling or protesting against certain doctrines that were held to within their own theological heritage. And so these five points that I just mentioned to you, the five points of Jacob Arminius, became the core of the controversy. 
Now, as a result of this debate and as a response to the Arminian position, Calvinists made five arguments of their own. And these five core theological issues became known in subsequent generations as the five points of Calvinism. They are now known through the very popular acrostic TULIP, which is a clever way to sum up the five articles that were in dispute. The five points, as you well know, are stated in order of the acrostic, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And while John Calvin himself never taught this particular acrostic, it was those who followed the summary of John Calvin's Reformed doctrines that came up with this idea of TULIP. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at these doctrines of grace as they are taught in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John. I want us to see this morning not only the truth behind the doctrines of grace, but I want us to see not the main text that we typically run to, like Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and a bunch of other texts, which we should. But I just kind of want you to see it this morning through the Gospel of John. I'm going to pull a thread this morning throughout the Gospel of John to show you how TULIP, or total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, all exist and begin not with John Calvin, but they begin in the Bible, and they're taught clearly in the Gospel of John by Jesus Christ himself. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to then illustrate it using the story of Lazarus, okay? So back to John 11, as we think about what's been going on here with Lazarus, who died and who was raised out of that grave. Remember, Martha did not understand why Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. And when she again did not understand why Jesus said, take away the stone because of the potential odor, remember what it was that Jesus said to her. Look back with me, if you will, at verse 40, where Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And just as Jesus revealed himself to Martha in a new way, I'm asking you to listen up carefully this morning and in the weeks to come, because if you believe in the gospel, I believe that God will take away the scales and the confusion that surrounds this topic and allow you to see the glory of God in a brand new way. If you'll do what Jesus said, if you'll believe with all of your heart in the gospel, I believe that you will see the glory of God. And so may God take the scales back from your eyes today so that you can see the glory of God in these glorious doctrines of grace. Now, as we've been looking at the miracles of Christ in the Gospel of John, we have to realize that there are seven signs. There are seven wonders. There are seven miracles that John specifically talks about in his Gospel because he has a very high and supernatural purpose that they would be used in the life of those who witnessed these miracles to show us something about Christ. There were many miracles that Jesus performed in his life. There were various displays of supernatural power, but these seven signs in the gospel of John have a very important function. Each one of these signs proves to be a portrait of saving grace. Each one proves to be a picture of the truth that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, and that he has come not only to preach saving grace, he has come to illustrate saving grace through these seven signs. 
The first sign, if you'll remember, we saw in John chapter 2. It was the turning of water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And it was more than a miracle to show who Jesus is. It was a picture of the new birth. It was to show the transforming power that just as Jesus took regular, plain old common water and turned it into the best wine that the master of the ceremony had ever tasted in the same way God takes regular pieces of clay like you and me and he transforms us by his saving grace. He dramatically changes us if you're in Christ today. No one is birthed into the kingdom without becoming a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And then we walk together, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of John, verse by verse. And here we are at this point in John chapter 11. And as we've walked through this Gospel, we've seen all of these signs in succession. We saw not only the turning of water into wine, but we saw Jesus heal the son of a Roman official. We have seen him feed the 5,000. We have seen Jesus walking on the water. We saw Jesus calm the storm. We've seen him give sight to the man born blind. But now we come to the grand crescendo. We come to the greatest of all the miracles that Jesus ever performed. We come in this chapter to John chapter 11 where we see the granddaddy of them all. This miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is a stair step upward. This miracle reaches the highest apex of truth. This is more than a miracle. It is a miracle, but it's more than that. It's a picture of you and of me being dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And this sign As we see it unfold, we can clearly see the sovereign and effectual and irresistible call of the Holy Spirit that raised us up from the dead. This story is a picture of Jesus giving life and enabling a dead man to have eternal life by believing in his name. This is what is taking place in John chapter 11, and it is here chronologically because it appears at the end of Jesus' public ministry. John chapter 2 is the first sign at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and John chapter 11 is the last sign at the end of his public ministry. And I believe that this seventh sign in the book of John is here also, not because it chronologically happens last, but because theologically it has such significance. This sign, this wonder, is the pinnacle. This is, again, the apex of saving grace. All other miracles picture and portray saving grace, but this one does so in even more vibrant colors. This one does so with a more magnificent and radiant brilliance that we can see in this miracle. And so this morning, as we celebrate the Reformation of October 31st, 1517, 501 years, I want to do a summary teaching of this beautiful acrostic named after the common flower of Holland, the tulip. And to be clear, I don't think that the acrostic tulip has any biblical authority. And some would argue that this might not be the wisest way to speak about these doctrines. I do, however, think that this is the most familiar and common way that these doctrines are thought of 
And of course, the acronym TULIP provides a convenient handle for remembering them. These doctrines are important because they take away any confidence in man for his own salvation, and instead they anchor salvation in the will and in the power of God alone. And so what I want to do is define each doctrine of grace briefly, show you how it's taught in the Gospel of John as we pull that thread throughout the Gospel, and then I want to illustrate it by us looking at the resurrection of Lazarus. And I have good news for you this morning. We're only doing one, all right? There's five points. I'm just doing one, but I happen to have 10 points under that one, all right? So here we go. The first one is total depravity. Number one, let's look at these 10 characteristics of total depravity in just a second, but first I'm going to define it, okay? So your first blank is how to understand this doctrine. Let's go a little deeper now into what exactly is total depravity and what is it not. So your next paragraph there is kind of a lengthy definition to robust sentences that says this, the Bible teaches the corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam at the fall. So we're saying in Adam we all sinned. In Adam, sin entered the human race. It's been passed down unto us. And that's why the second sentence says, total depravity emphasizes that man was categorically born into sin. And therefore, we are sinners by nature and not just by practice. In other words, you weren't born neutral and then as a product of the environment started to sin and therefore you were thought of as a sinner. Now, the Bible teaches you were born as a sinner, and therefore you sin. That's the way we're born. We're born in a sinful condition. And because of this, man has no ability to save himself. Man's will is not free to choose God, but rather man is a slave to his sin. He is in bondage to his sin, and there is no way out except through the sovereign grace of God. You say, well, Adam, where does the Bible say that? Well, we know there's lots of places outside of John that we could look at, like Romans 3, 10 and 11, where it says there is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks God. I mean, that reminds us right there. We're all sinners. I think we all agree with that. But then it says there is no one who understands. On your own, you can't understand the gospel. And not only does it say that, it says no one even seeks for God. In your dead, depraved, unbelieving state, you're not looking for God. You're looking for ways to express your sin to a further degrees. And so not only are we not righteous, but we're not even seeking after God in our fallen condition. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we realize there is a devastating impact of sin on each one of us as sinners. As a result of our sinful nature, every part of you, your mind, and your will, and your emotions, and your flesh have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of your being, including who you are and what you do. To be totally depraved means there is a complete inability of a person to please God on your own apart from his power working in you. We see this again in Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is an issue of ability. It cannot. 
Dead in your trespasses and sins means I cannot submit to God's law. It goes further in Romans 8, 8 to say that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible for a sinner on his own, apart from God's grace, to ever glorify God. And so the Bible says that the man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The Bible teaches that you were born into sin and a sinful nature, that before you were saved, you were captive to your sin and to your love for sin. You suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. Your mind and your thinking was hostile to God. In your sinful condition, you did not subject yourself to God's law or God's word. At any attempt to please God was futile. Your best works were but filthy rags. Ephesians 2, we've heard it read already. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. And so while it is true that without Christ, we are dead and we are at enmity with God and we are truly evil, we must also remember that in the Reformed tradition, total depravity does not mean that every human being is as bad as they possibly could be. It just means categorically we're sinful. Categorically, we can't please God. Remember, human beings are created in the image of God and every human being has a opportunity just by being alive to represent the common grace of God in life by witnessing his creation, by having a conscience, by having some type of moral aptitude. We know in our hearts that there is a God and so not everybody's as bad as they could be. You might even think of the arch enemy of history like Adolf Hitler and say, well, that was the worst guy he could have ever been. Certainly he was totally depraved and I, he was no more totally depraved than you and I were. Yes, he fleshed it out in gruesome ways, but he wasn't all evil all the time, only in the sense that he might have had some love for his family or had some type of redeeming value to his life outside of his very clear sinful acts. So the idea of total depravity doesn't mean that all humans are as wicked as they can possibly be. What it does mean is that at the fall, there was such a serious implication of a sin entering the world that now sin affects the whole person. And the fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies. And that's why we become ill. And that's why we die. And it affects our minds and our thinking. And we still have the capacity to think, but the Bible says the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will, according to the New Testament, is now in bondage. We are enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. The body and the mind and the will and the spirit. Indeed, the whole person has been infected by the power of sin. And so now that we've looked at a definition of total depravity and seen it from a few texts that we often run to to first explain this important doctrine. I want us to take a little time to show you 10 aspects of how this is taught in the Gospel of John. So your next blank, Sarah, how is it taught in the Gospel of John? It's more than Romans. It's more than Ephesians. It's taught throughout the whole Bible and particularly in the Gospel of John, I believe Jesus teaches this doctrine of total depravity better than anyone else. You ready? 10 aspects, total depravity from the Gospel of John. Number one, you cannot receive Jesus on your own ability. 
I would already filled in some of the blanks for you, so you could just listen and take a break at times and just listen. But turn with me, if you will, now. Let's pull the thread of total depravity, that doctrine through the Gospel of John, and we'll start off with John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 11. That verse says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now remember, this is right in the middle of the prologue, the introduction to John, where we learn that Jesus is the word that became flesh, that all things were made through him, and that in Jesus' life, and that's the life, uh, that life is the light of men. And even though the true light has come into the world, the world did not know him. And not only did the world not know him, but his own people did not know him. I mean, think about it. God chose the Jews out of all the peoples on the earth. According to Deuteronomy 14, 12, God says, I choose you. And he chose a certain ethnicity. And he blessed them with the Abrahamic covenant. And he delivered them from Egypt. And he took them through 40 years through the desert. And he brought them into the promised land. And he time and time again blessed them. And his greatest blessing to them was Christ. He gave them Christ, a Jew for Jews, for saving grace. And yet they rejected him. His people rejected him as a collective people. The Jews were and are still special to God. And yet his own people did not receive him. Instead, they rejected him. They nailed him to a cross and they did away with him. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And why were they like that? by the way. Why did they treat him like that? It's because they cannot receive Jesus on their own ability. They were somehow trying to add Jesus to their legalism. They were somehow trying to fit Jesus into a mold of their own making. And the same is true for us in our depravity today. Somehow we forget the fact God's given us everything. The fact that you're alive today is a gift of God. The fact that you're breathing his air shows that he's a good God who loves you. And yet you want to mold him and shape him into your own creation instead of realizing, you know what? I'm part of his creation. I mean, God has shown you his love not only through creation, but through the cross. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But you can never receive that truth on your own apart from God's grace. You cannot receive Jesus on your own doing. I mean, God has to jumpstart your heart. Now you realize you're dead. I'm dead. That's how we're born. We need God to take the first step. We love him because he first loved us. And as we think about illustrating that through the life of Lazarus, please note here that in the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus took the first step. Jesus walked to the tomb. It was Jesus initiating the idea of taking away the stone. It was Jesus who came to the edge of the cave and called Lazarus forth. This wasn't Lazarus meeting Jesus halfway. No, this was a full resuscitation performed not by the ability of Lazarus in any way, but rather it was performed by the great physician, Jesus Christ. Remember, Lazarus had no heartbeat. His body had decomposed it was nasty in there thus the odor right and yet jesus comes in and it's all of him lazarus could not have received that if jesus did not purposefully infuse life into lazarus and so not only can you not receive jesus on your own but number two you are already condemned let's look further at our depravity and turn to john 3 verse 18 you are 
in a sinful condition, you are already condemned. Listen to what Jesus says in John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so while God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever would believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. There are many who do not believe. And if you do not believe, and if you do not, uh, and if you will not believe, then the Bible says you stand condemned already. You may think in our Western system of justice that you're innocent until proven guilty. But the judge of the universe says you are born a sinner. You are born as a reprobate. Your nature is sinful. Your condition is depraved. Your legal status before God is that you are condemned already. You have already fallen short. You have already been convicted. So if you don't believe and if you don't uh, look to Christ, then you don't have any hope. And there's no getting out on bail. There is no parole. There is no appeal process with God. The supreme justice of God demands a verdict, and that verdict is guilty as charged. This is how God sees you without Christ. Without Christ, you have no mercy. Without Christ, you have no chance. You are condemned already. It's too late to go back. It's too late to say, I'm sorry. You and I as depraved sinners stand before the holy judge. And if we are not in Christ, the gavel of justice pounds the table. And the judge of the universe says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And please note that Lazarus did not argue with Jesus about his fallen condition. Lazarus did not defend his case to the sovereign judge. Lazarus did not fight against the fact that as a result of the fall, he lay dormant in the grave. He was condemned to death because the wages of sin is death, and that means not only spiritual death, but physical death as well. And there is no way out of this. You are painted into a corner. Apart from the mercy of Christ, we all lie condemned in the grave. A third aspect of total depravity, as we see it in the Gospel of John, number three, you love the darkness. Lest you think God puts you in a bad place against your own will, let's be reminded here that the very next verse in John, chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So this is not some holy God up in heaven putting his foot down on good people, making them sinners. No, this is people born in sin who love the darkness, depraved people love the darkness. No one makes you do dark deeds. No one makes you step over to the dark side. You were already there. You were born that way. God is not making you do something against your will. Your will has already been bent towards evil, and your inclinations are to pursue your sin. And on your own, apart from Christ, you loved the darkness rather than the light. I mean, why come into the light? The light exposes your shame. The light exposes your guilt. The light calls you into a different space. The light demands radical cleansing and radical transformation. The light requires a wholesale change. 
And those who love the darkness believe that they are just fine the way that they are. And they don't care about change. And they would rather die in their sin than to die as a believer. You know, when I worked as a physician's assistant, I did some training at a VA hospital. And I had the opportunity to work at a VA hospital for about six to eight weeks. And I spent a lot of time in the pulmonary department where I treated patients who were suffering with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and emphysema. Oftentimes, those two go hand in hand with longtime smokers. Many of these patients that I was treating were very sick and decrepit. A lot of the patients had tracheotomies, where there had been an incision at some point made on their trachea and a plastic tube inserted so that at times through the day they could hook up more oxygen or even go on the ventilator at night. But during the daytime, I would see some of these older men walking up and down the hallways pushing an IV pole. And oftentimes they would go out into the courtyard just outside the hospital. And you could see throughout the glass doors as they would walk out there, they would light up a cigarette and smoke it through their trach. And I remember just watching. I'm a young physician assistant, and I'm like, what are they doing? And I go to the doctors, and I'm like, doctor, doctor, you got to get that guy. There's another one. There's two more over there. And they're all like, it's nasty, right? It's, It's just a picture I can't get out of my head, right? And this is a picture of a sinner loving the darkness. This is a picture of no one made them go out there. No one said you need to keep doing this. No, there, there, was, there, was an, there was a desire so ingrained in some of some people to continue to pursue their sin no matter what, and they don't want out. They love their sin. It's a picture of total depravity. A fourth characteristic of total depravity, number four, you are under the wrath of God. Turn to John chapter three. You're there already. Go, go down to verse 36. You are under the wrath of God. A depraved person is under his wrath. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You either believe in the Son of God or you don't. If you truly believe in the Son of God, that means that you love him. And if you love Jesus, then you will obey him. And if you don't obey Jesus regularly as the trajectory of your life, then how can you say you really love him? If you don't love Jesus, which is evidenced by obeying him, then it could be you're an unbeliever. I mean, Jesus says, you'll, the Bible says you'll know them by their fruit. Jesus also says that if you love me, you will obey me. And so if someone's consistently walking in sin in an unrepentant way, then it shows that they don't love Christ and they're an unbeliever. And this verse says the wrath of God remains on them. The wrath of God is his righteous indignation. God's wrath is his divine response to sin and disobedience. God's wrath is always holy and it is always justified. The wrath of God is a fearsome and terrifying thing. Only those who have been covered by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross can be assured that they will never have to face the wrath of God. Otherwise, God's wrath remains on you. This word remains means that it stays on you, that it bears down on you, that it persists and it doesn't let up. Listen to me. God doesn't forget about your sin And he doesn't forgive your sin if you're outside of Christ. 
His wrath remains on you. His wrath has nothing to do with uncontrolled temper, but everything to do with a holy hatred for sin and all that dishonors God's glory and his intrinsic holiness. And if you have not believed upon the Son of God, then the wrath of God remains on you. Please note that just as God's wrath remains upon sinners, death remains upon the dead. In the case of Lazarus, there was no letting up of his dead condition. There was no way out of his permanent cessation of life. He would have remained in the grave for an eternity if he had not been brought out by the life-giving words of Jesus. And in the same way, God's wrath remains on you unless Christ bears that wrath for you by dying on the cross in your place so that you can truly live. A fifth characteristic of total depravity, number five, you hate Christ. If you're totally depraved, then you hate Christ. Look at John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So here Jesus clearly teaches us that unbelievers, depraved people, hate Christ. The world hates Christ. Those who are still in their depravity are not neutral towards the things of Christ. They are utterly negative. They are livid. They are angry at God. Uh, The word hate means to have a strong aversion to. It means to detest. Depraved sinners abhor God. They loathe Christ. They find the Bible as intolerable. There is a disdain towards everything that Christ stands for. Now, I remember as a kid growing up, my parents taught me not to use that word hate. But I also remember walking around the house at times saying, I hate the devil. I hate Satan. And it's like, well, what do you do with a kid like that? You know, they're walking around the house, I hate the devil. You're like, well, I, uh, you shouldn't say that, but I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, I mean, maybe you've had your kids do the same thing, right? Uh, speak, speaking of hate again, I, I learned that, uh, that I hated vegetables growing up. How many of you guys liked vegetables as a kid growing up? How many of you did not like vegetables growing up? How many of you hated vegetables? So I hated vegetables, particularly broccoli, butter beans, and collard greens. And when my mama started cooking that kind of stuff on the stove on any given night, the smell would fill the house. And I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. This is going to be a bad night. And sure enough, I'd go to the table and I'd have to watch my mom and dad take a big serving spoon, dip down deep into the pot and pull out a heaping pile of butter beans and put them on my plate. And I would just sit there and stare at them. And my mom and dad would say, you're not leaving this table till you eat those butter beans. I'm like, well, then I'm not leaving the table because <laughs> I'm not eating those butter beans. And sure enough, one by one, my siblings would finish their meal and go to their room. My mom and dad would even clean up the kitchen and say, hey, boy, you're not leaving until you eat those beans. And I would sit there and I would look at those beans and say, I hate you. I hate butter beans. Right? You know what I'm feeling? Come on, who's been there? Come on, it's not just me, right? All right, thank you, thank you. All right, so this is what we're talking about. That's how deep the world hates Christ. They don't like the smell of Christ. They don't like the sight of Christ. They don't like his voice. They don't want him in the same room. They don't want it anywhere near their plate. They hate Christ. This is how the world and a depraved person feels 
about the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't like the fact that people talk about Christ and people believe in Christ. They hate Christ because he testifies that their works are evil and unbelievers want to be affirmed, not confronted. They want to be applauded, not convicted. They want to be awarded, not condemned. And believe me, the body of Lazarus was just fine in the grave. His earthly body probably didn't want to get up. His muscles had gotten stiff. He had found a certain level of comfort in his dead state. And that's how our flesh is without Christ. We don't want to change. We don't want to put up our sin. We don't want to get up and come into the light. We like the darkness. We like our sin. And therefore, our flesh hates Christ. That's what it means to be totally depraved. Number six, you are guilty and self-righteous. You are guilty and self-righteous. In the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, we read how the Pharisees brought this woman, threw her down at Jesus' feet, said Moses' law said to stone such a woman, what do you say? And as they continued to ask him in verse 7, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And when we looked at this story earlier in the year, I told you that this story of the woman caught in the act of adultery has all of the, the fixings of a setup. Uh, the way this woman was caught in the act, uh, the way that they drug her out one morning and threw her down in front of Jesus while he was teaching publicly at the temple, the way that the man somehow got away and, and he was nowhere to be found. Uh, there, was, there was something not right about this story. And so when Jesus is processing what they're saying and how they're condemning her, and, and uh, he starts, you know, stooping down and drawing in the dirt. Remember that? He's, he's writing something in the dirt, and some people said that uh, maybe some of the scribes and Pharisees were also guilty of the same sin, and so he's writing their names in the dirt. Some people were saying that some of those Pharisees had committed adultery with the same woman. We don't know. But this is what we do know. When Jesus says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone, it is a reminder that we are all guilty. For who here among us is without sin? We all deserve to be stoned. The wages of our sin is death. We shouldn't be so quick to point out others' sin. We should be quick to confess our sin and say, oh God, I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. This is a reminder to get the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck out of your neighbor's eye. But total depravity can't see that. Total depravity sees injustice in others and excuses our own. Total depravity points to the faults of others but is selective in recognizing faults in our own life. And in a similar way, the same thing happens even in the story of the man born blind. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but because you say we see, your guilt remains. And in that story, he's just saying, hey, you self-righteous Pharisees are trying to get onto me for breaking the Sabbath by telling this man to wash the mud off his eyes. They said that was breaking the Sabbath. You guys are just being self-righteous. And that's how total depravity works. You're blind, you're accusing others, and you're not receiving the confrontation yourself. And so that's what someone does if they're totally depraved. So let me ask you this morning, are you guilty of committing sin? Are you acting like you are better than others? Are you self-righteous by thinking that you know better than the Bible? I know the Bible says this, but that can't possibly be true. Or how do you expect me to live like that? I'm no saint. 
Well, no one is asking you to be Jesus, but we are asking you to follow in his footsteps. And we are asking you to recognize that you are a sinner, and unless you confess your sin, your guilt remains. Don't be self-righteous. Rather, look to the righteousness of Christ. Only Christ can remove your guilt and cause you to be truly holy. Another characteristic of total depravity, number seven, you will die in your sin. Turn with me to John chapter 8, verses 21 and 24. And so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In these verses, Jesus is saying, one day I will go away and be back with the Father and you will wish you had listened. You may even try to seek me at some point, but it will be too late for you. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And after the crucifixion, Jesus is going to heaven where he is going. You cannot come unless you've been born again. I don't know if you've ever missed a flight. I've missed a few in my day. And I remember the first flight I ever missed while I was living in Savannah, Georgia. I had a flight to catch, but I underestimated the time it would take to get to the airport. You ever notice how traffic just mounts, right, when you need to get somewhere real fast? Right? I underestimated how far I had to park my car and then walk across the airport parking lot to the ticket counter. I underestimated how long it would take me to check in my luggage and to get my boarding pass and then somehow get through security. And then I underestimated how long it would take me to walk from security to my gate. And sure enough, when I arrived to the gate, the door closed, like right in front of me. I'm walking up to the gate, the door closes, and the flight attendant or flight agent just says, I'm sorry, you've missed your flight. I'm like, what are you talking about, miss my flight? The plane's right there. I'm right here. I have a ticket. Like, just pull that door open, and I'll get on the plane. We'll be about our way. She said, I'm so sorry. We, we have a rule that we can't open the, the plane door. You have missed your flight. And you know what? That flight attendant sounded to me something like Jesus at this point. Right? I told you that you would miss the flight, the flight attendant said, and unless you arrived here on time. And Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. If you are late, you will miss your flight. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will die in your sin. Don't underestimate the words of Jesus. Don't casually approach the call to eternal life. Don't stop and get coffee when you need to get on the plane. And Jesus is calling you today. Are you listening? Don't wait until it's too late. For Lazarus, death came sooner than expected. And it almost always does. Just as Lazarus died, so will we all unless Christ returns first. So don't wait another day. Repent of your sins today and receive the gift of eternal life. The eighth characteristic of total depravity that I see here in the Gospel of John is this. Number eight, you are a slave to your sin. Look at John eight thirty four. You are a slave to your sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now remember, every time Jesus says truly, truly, it means listen up. Listen up, depraved people, unregenerate people, unbelievers, you are a slave to your sin. And if you continue to practice sin, then you are a slave to your sin. Most addicts are in denial. 
Most alcoholics think they can control their drinking. Most drug addicts think they can quit at any time. Most people who are addicted to pornography say that that was their last time. Most people who are addicted to gambling just want one more win. Most people who are addicted to cigarettes say they tried to stop and they just can't. Unbelievers have no power over their sin. They are truly slaves to their sinful nature. Unbelievers are not, uh, excuse me, unbelievers are not free. They have a corrupt heart. They have a convoluted mind. They have a constant craving for more. They think they are happy. They love their sin. They always want more. They never want to stop. Dead people want to just keep being dead. Lazarus was a slave to death. He could not get out of the hold of death even if he had have wanted to. And you and I are a slave to our sin apart from Christ. There's no way out if Jesus doesn't come and free us. And so if you are a slave to your sin this morning, I have good news for you this morning, this very day, you can be set free. On this day, you can be forgiven. On this day, you can be changed forever from the inside out by the blood of Christ. I'm not talking about a change in the outer man. I'm talking about a change in the inner man. I'm not talking about a psychological change. I'm talking about a spiritual change. I'm not talking about moralism where you just try to start doing better. I'm talking about regeneration where God changes your heart. I'm not asking you to change from one sin to another. I'm asking you to repent of all your sin and to believe in Christ so that you can be changed from being a sinner who is in slavery to tasting the freedom of God in Christ. You need a new master this morning, and his name is Jesus. A ninth characteristic of depravity, you are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. If you're depraved, this is you. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You may not know this, but unbelievers have a father. He is known as the God of this world. He is the ruler of the demons. He is Lucifer. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is depicted as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is seen in the garden as a serpent. He is described in Revelation as a dragon. He is our tempter. He is our great adversary. He is Beelzebub. He is Belial. He is the wicked one, and he is the father of lies. And for every unbeliever who is in this place today, he is your father. He is your master. You work for him. You obey him. You fulfill his will. You are under his control. Listen to me this morning, you need out. You need help. You need an escape. You need a new father and you need a new identity. You were created in the image of God and it's time for you to be recreated in the image of Christ. And so I call you this day away from the darkness and away from the shame and away from your idol, come to Jesus today. If you're hearing the Lord's voice through his word, I call you to come out come away. Come to Jesus. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. 
Don't throw in the towel. Abandon your sin. Renounce the pleasures of this world. Drop your worldly connections. Ditch your deadly desires. Desert your earthly lust. Give it all up and yield to Christ. Run to his voice. Embrace the arms of Jesus. Delight yourself in his love for you. Take pleasure in his blessings. Be captivated by his grace. Be thrilled with his joy. Enter into the kingdom today and savor Christ. Revel in him. Relish the Savior. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Do you know God? as a distant deity or as a father who you can talk to and run to and be comforted by. This father will never let you down. This father will never disappoint you. This father will never disown you. This father rent the heavens and came down in the person of Christ. This father moved heaven and earth for you. This father gave up his only son so that you could be adopted into his family. This father loves all of those who are in Christ with an everlasting love. And so I plead with you this morning, don't let the grave hold you and don't let Satan keep you. Lazarus came forth and he changed sides from death to life and so can you by the sovereign grace of God. One final aspect of depravity, you are lost and walking in the darkness. John chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Another perfect description of our Lord Jesus about what depravity is all about. If you are an unbeliever, then you are lost. To be totally depraved means you cannot see the light on your own. You must have God show it to you. And he has in the person of Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh and he came to earth as fully God and fully man to show us the way. The light lived on this planet for 33 years. Jesus is the light of the world and he never sinned. He never stumbled. He never failed. The darkness chased him frantically, but Jesus was tried and true. He was tempted and he was mocked and he was ridiculed and some tried to stone him. Some tried to push him off a cliff and others tried to convict him of sins that he never committed. But the light of Christ was too bright. The light of Christ is brighter than all the lights of the world put together. Yes, the light of Christ is brighter than the sun. So in your depravity, don't let the darkness overtake you. Don't let the shadow of the world cover you. Don't go around groping in the dark. Come out of the darkness. Come out of the cave. Come out of the black hole of sin and see the light of Christ. And when Lazarus' body was in the grave, it was in utter darkness. There were no nightlights in the cave of Lazarus. And in your depravity, you are in utter darkness as well. And when you are walking in the darkness, you have no aim. You have no direction. You have no way of which way you're going. You may think you know, but you don't really know because knowledge doesn't live in the darkness. It lives in the light. Wisdom does not take up residence in the darkness. Its home is in the light. Blessings do not flow in the darkness. They flow in the light of day. It's important for us as Christians to see this doctrine of total depravity so that we may see the beauty 
of saving grace. If you weren't this bad, then the grace of God wouldn't be that good. And it's important for us as a church and as a Christian to review where you've come from so that you can be so much more encouraged about where you're going. And we ought to stop at points in our Christian life and be like, I had no idea how bad I really was. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. It wasn't me, Lord. I was dead. I was lost. I was serving my father, the devil. And yet, you drew me out. And you set my feet on a rock. And you showed me the light of Christ. And I can be born again. And it's all by God's grace. You're totally depraved. But his grace is so irresistible that it changes you and it conforms you, and it draws you, and it pulls you, not against your will. He changes your will, and he changes your desire, and he lets you see the light of Christ. This is the beauty of what we'll be looking at as we continue in the next few weeks to come to look at Lazarus and the tulip. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to do a deep dive this morning on the doctrine of total depravity. And while in some ways it could be a depressing truth to look at, in other ways we probably don't think about it enough. Sometimes we have too much, too much, uh, 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 too quick just to be fluffy in our thinking and not to realize the depth of our depravity apart from Christ. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to have a biblically balanced view of the horrors of depravity and yet on that backdrop, we would see the beauty of grace, the amazing nature of grace, the marvelous song of grace. Today, God, we want to understand a little deeper our depravity so that we can understand a little deeper our regeneration, the fact that you've saved us by grace in Christ. May we never get tired of singing about it, thinking about it, talking about it, living it out for your glory. God, help these truths to become evident in our life and help us to love you with all that we are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.